graph that I've used before. Um, when we talk about heaven, talk about the end times, we talk about what's happening in the future, I think that sometimes it's a jarring and a shocking thing for us because um, I find this to be the case, that if you go on this little scale, the more earthly comfort that you experience in life, the less heavenly minded you tend to be. So the more that we experience comforts, the harder it is for us to get our minds on what's coming in the future. Um, when I was in Africa over this past summer, and the earthly comfort scale was fairly low, I found that the Christians there had their minds very much on the things of heaven, more so than I think American Christians often do, because um, it was their hope and their solace. And so we're going to be a little bit like those Christians I met in Africa, and uh, talk, think about the, the end times, the, and actually what comes next in this world, this, this fragile world that God is holding together, but he has great redemptive purposes for it in the future. Uh, and so we're going to be a little bit like them. So if you'd open to Luke chapter 21, Luke chapter 21, if you need a Bible, we can pass one to you. Um, and this is a Bible that you can feel free to take home with you. Just raise your hand. We'll give one to you. Luke chapter 21, we're going to be starting in verse 5. We're continuing through the gospel of Luke in our series, Total Transformation. I'm praying and I'm hoping that you're praying, to, you're expecting God to do wonderful things in and through this last part of this series to bring about transformation and to get our eyes focused on the transformation that is coming. Now, in order to go forward and think about the future, we've got to go backwards a little bit in this text. Last week, we were in the temple. Jesus was observing a widow giving uh, in the temple. And so they're still in the temple in this text that we're looking at this morning. And I want to give you a little illustration of what the temple looked like. Uh, this is pretty magnificent. You think about it, this is A.D. 33, okay? Um, yeah, I don't normally think of edifices like this in A.D. 33, do you? I don't think of these, these things on this grand scale. I know it's hard to see, but if you see the little dots here right about in the center, those are supposed to be people. And so you get a sense of the scale of the temple complex. And what I want you to note is just how robust, how solid, how stable. This was on top of a, a mountain. And so, uh, as Josephus says, it was, it was covered in gold in many places, lots of layers of gold. And so, when it would glisten in the sun, you'd be looking up in this mountain. He said, it looked like a snow-capped mountain because of the, the sun glistening in the gold. Just a, a beautiful, beautiful edifice, solid. People from all over Israel would, would make a pilgrimage uh, multiple times in their lives, sometimes yearly, to come to the temple to offer sacrifices and it was, a, it was a pillar of strength. It was a wonderful... It took them 80 years to build this. Uh, and so uh, that sets the tone for a little bit of what Jesus is going to say uh, in this next part, starting in, in, in verse, in verse uh, 5 that we're going to be looking at. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus, said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You can imagine these disciples listening to Jesus talk, huh? I mean, this is the most solid, stable thing that we, that we see, that we have. And you're telling me that the day will come when this will, be, this will be torn down, that the stones, these heavy, magnificent, most the best stones that could be found piled on top of each other, so well-crafted. You're telling me there's going to be a day when, when, when they're going to be, there's going to be upheaval and the stones will be broken away from each other. It's an unfamiliar future for them. You know how this is. When, when you try to picture a future that you 
you've never seen or experienced before, it's very difficult. You, you, your mind can't grasp it because you've got no experience with it, and so it's a, it's a big stretch. And, and these disciples, as they're thinking about this, is a, is a big stretch. But it turns out that Jesus was correct because in AD 70, this temple was destroyed and the stones were brought down. And by the way, kind of as an aside, it's interesting to note that in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, there is no description of this destruction of the temple, which many scholars use as an argument for an early writing of these books, because one would think that if they were written after A.D. 70, then they would have included some sort of description of the destruction of the temple, but we don't find that in these Gospels, and we don't find it in the book of Acts, and so... Um, there's a strong argument that these were actually written earlier than that. So these, these, these writings come from a very early time. But that's kind of an aside. Now, uh, verse 7, and, and they asked him, Jesus, teacher, when will these things be, this, this destruction you're talking about, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? A very natural human impulse when somebody gives you dramatic news like Jesus has given them that this edifice will be torn down. There's a desire to want to know more, to want to seek control over the future, to, to want to be able to somehow manage the future. Lord, tell us when this is going to happen so that we can be ready, so we can be prepared. Uh, very natural. What are the signs? And instead, what we find, and this sort of sets the tone for the rest of this text, is that Jesus is not going to give them precise timing on when this will happen. Rather, his focus is going to be on how they ought to live in the midst of the crisis that is to come. In fact, he's going to give them what I would say three secrets for navigating the crisis that's to come. Verse 8, and he said, see that you are not led astray. That's the first one. If you're type who underlines in their Bible... Underline these three words, not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, here's the second one, do not be terrified. So if you're an underliner, underline that one. Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Verse 10, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity, and here's the third one, to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all For my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain 
your lives. There's so much in this text. We have really two weeks to spend on this, and perhaps next week we'll spend a little bit more time on the framework of the last things on the end times. This week, I want us to focus on the three statements I suggested you underline, and that's how to live in the midst of the crisis that is coming. How to live in the midst of the crisis that is coming. We'll put those three up there just so everything's clear right as we begin. Remember, Jesus said, don't be led astray, don't be afraid, don't be terrified, and bear witness. We'll talk about those three this morning. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is the big crisis that comes at the end of all things and ushers us eventually into the new heaven and the new earth, when all that's broken in this world is redeemed, when God has his way completely with the world that he made. And so it's, it's that big crisis that we're focusing on. But, but we have to say that, that, that all of this is, is part of, it's, it's, it's all part of the same cloth. And the crisis that we experience not, today, the small crises we face, they're all part of the same fabric leading up because they're all, they all stem from the fallenness and the brokenness of, of this world. And so in some ways we can say that the, these words are to prepare us for that future crisis, the big one, but they also minister to us for the day-to-day crisis that we face on a regular basis as we simply live in a fallen and broken world. It's both and. And so I want us to toggle between those. And as we practice you know, living as Christ would have us live in the day-to-day crises of everyday experience, it will prepare us for that day when the big, the ultimate, the end times crisis comes. And so the two are very connected. So we'll be toggling back and forth between those. So now the first one says simply, don't be led astray. Now, the word uh, underneath that is the same word that we get, uh, that we use to get the word planet. And and, and the ancients thought that the the planets were these objects that were were straying uh, and and wandering in the sky. And so uh, it's the same word of wandering or be led astray. And in a crisis, isn't it the case that when it seems like God is not providing the answers that we deeply long for. There is a strong temptation for us to look elsewhere for the answers. You see this in the history of the people of God. We see this, for example, in the time of of Moses, right after they came out of Egypt. God had demonstrated his power and his might in such wonderful ways. And when things took a strange turn and they couldn't make sense of it, what did they want to do? They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to turn away from God and go back to Egypt to find answers for the problems they were facing. You see it in the person of Saul. Saul was, was waiting and he was supposed to wait. King Saul was supposed to wait to make, to make a sacrifice and, and he became nervous and anxious and he couldn't wait in the pressure and so he went to consult a medium. He tried to find some other authority, some other uh, advice to speak into his life because he wasn't getting the answers that he wanted in that moment from God. And then again, in the history of Israel, there was this temptation over and over again for them to look elsewhere when things got difficult. And many times it was to look, for example, back to Egypt. The kings would look back to Egypt for for comfort, strengthening when they felt the forces of the other nations coming around them. And so we see this temptation. In fact, it's kind of a key to the Old Testament in general. People depending on not God instead of on God when things get difficult. 
and the answers seem far and few between. We find that to be the case in our own lives. I was talking with a church planter that I've been working with uh, over the last few years, and this church that he was a part of starting, he was the lead pastor as they started it, took off with a bang, and they were doing great, and uh, things were going really well, and they hit their first summer, and they began to struggle a little bit, and this pastor did something that uh, he regretted afterwards. He, he decided to take a job uh, outside of his full-time ministry just as a sort of security for the anxiety that was feeling about how things were going. And without consulting his leaders and without really praying about it, he leapt into this job and, and made a commitment to work at the school where they were meeting for an entire year. Well, shortly thereafter, things smoothed out and they were fine. It turns out he didn't need to have taken this job. But they were renting the facility from the school and he couldn't back out of his commitment. They needed to to be there. And so for an entire year, he continued working two jobs and having a diminished capacity to do his ministry. And even more than that, uh, this job that he took had him coming home every night after his smallest daughter went to bed. So for an entire year, he had to miss out during the week on that time with his smallest daughter. I talked to him you know, partway through, and he said, you know, I learned a huge lesson. I panicked, I became anxious, and without prayerfully considering, I leapt and made a decision that ended up causing lots of difficulties and challenges in my life, difficulties and challenges. And, and, and we celebrated when that year was done, and he was able to let go of that job, we celebrated. And, and, and there's redemption, of course, and there's forgiveness, but sometimes there are lasting consequences when we, when we leap out on our own without consulting God, when, when we want to we lean on something other than God. And that was the case with this church planter. I could tell you many, many stories in my own life where I've done that as well. And maybe you could too. We all do this. There's, there's anxiety that comes in, and, and we, we hate to sit in the anxious seat, and so we, we leap out for a solution that doesn't come from God that will somehow fix what we're struggling with. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, when the end comes, there's going to be chaos and craziness, and you're going to be tempted to, to reach out for a not-God solution. And I'm telling you, don't do it. Wait for clarity. Wait for God. When God, when Jesus comes, it will be obvious you won't be asking, is that him? Because he will come in a way that nobody else could come. So don't go following after those who claim to be me, but they're not me. Sit tight. Wait for clarity. You will know. You will know. One of the series that we went through a long time ago, we talked about making decisions, and I wanted to throw up something that might be helpful in this light. Uh, When we're faced with anxiety-producing circumstances, and, and we're tempted to make an expedient decision, you know, what is it? What do we do to make a good decision? And, and, and this is one of the most important things that we do for one another in this community is to help each other make good decisions. So many times, these big life decisions we come to, we're about to, we're, we're about to step out, and without any consultation or prayer, we just leap into these big decisions, and then we, we have the consequences to burden us for 
years and sometimes even decades. And as a community, as a church, and as home groups, we provide this, this place where you can seek godly answers to those kinds of questions that you're facing. And, and there's, in this little wheel, it talks about you know, making a good decision. Which way should I go? Uh, was the name of the series that we were on. And I'm not going to spend a long time on this. But, but what you want to do when you make a good decision is you want to bring together the four spokes of this wheel. First of all, God's word. Any decision that we make needs to be in line with God's word. It provides the, the guardrails for all of our decisions. And then if you go to the right, you want to bathe it in prayer. You're just saying, God, help me to make a good decision. I need your, your counsel and your discernment, however you want to bring it. And you want to give space for God to work. You don't want to make decisions quickly without having consulted the Lord and giving him time to speak into the situation. You want to seek out on the bottom spoke godly counsel. Um, I'm in this anxiety-producing situation. I want to reach out and do something quickly to solve it, but I need to wait. I need to, I need to get with people who, who seem to know the Lord well. They know their Bibles well. They walk with the Lord. They make good decisions. They have a track record of making good decisions in their lives. I want to get with those people and talk to them about my circumstance and let them speak into it and give me counsel. I think sometimes we're tempted to to go with whatever counsel is near. You're at the water cooler at work, and here's a person whose life is an absolute mess, and you've seen them make over decision after decision after decision where they've wrecked everything, but they're willing to listen and give you advice, and you go, oh, that sounds great, right? That's probably not the person that you want to, to base your decisions on. You want to do the hard work of finding the godly counsel, somebody who's been around the block and, and able to give you some insight. And then lastly, yes, Part of the way that God leads us is through a sense of internal calling, um, that, you know, the, the, the desires and the longings that he's placed in us. Those, those can be wrong, but oftentimes God works through those. And, and, and the circumstances around us, sometimes God closes doors. In fact, oftentimes when we're praying on the right side and we're creating that space, we're saying to God, open doors or close doors. If you want me to go in this particular direction or you don't, close those doors. If you want me to go this way, open those doors, Lord. Create circumstances that lead me in the way I should go. So you don't, have to just, you, know, you don't have to just sit there and do nothing when you're in the midst of crisis and you feel like a decision. You don't have to do nothing. You can do all of these things and wait and wait. When God moves, he moves with clarity. There's so much more we could talk about on that, but we need to move, we need to move on. So don't be led astray. Don't be led astray is the first one. The second one is don't be afraid. I love this in this text. What does it say? There's going to be wars. There will be clashes between nations. There's going to be earthquakes. Okay? You, 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 we're in California. We've, we've been through earthquakes, right? You know how your whole body locks up and you're like, oh my goodness. You know, this is craziness. Okay, there's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. We probably haven't experienced that, but we've read about it in history books. There's going to be plagues, okay? We've, we've heard about those. We haven't experienced those. There are going to be random cosmic events in the sky happening, okay? Just, we don't know. It could be shooting stars, falling stars, whatever. Uh, we don't know what that is. Random cosmic events in the sky. And if that weren't enough, your relatives, your parents, and your friends might hate you in the midst of all that. But don't be afraid. But don't be afraid. It makes me feel a little silly about the things that I get scared of, right? We went and saw The Hobbit recently, and uh, we're sitting there watching the movie, and my wife's sitting next to me, and some computer-generated monster comes out, pixelated on this screen, doesn't really exist, just an image, right? And she screams out and practically pulls my arm off, 
And uh, it kind of, I'm in the movie at that moment, right? And it sort of yanks me out of my suspension of reality, and now I'm in the theater, right? Because I'm afraid that we're going to disturb these people's experience, right? So that fear kicks in. And then I'm looking around, and, and, and I see next to me um, that the, 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 there's a stairway with a, a handrail. In case anybody needs to walk down the stairs, there's a handrail to make sure that they're safe. And over in the corner over here is an exit sign. In case there's anything dangerous that's happening, we all need to know by law how to exit this room. And so there's a, a red exit sign that we can, we can see there to make sure that we're safe. Um, I'm noticing the temperature in the room is just about exactly perfect for human existence. Um, and the person next to me is munching on popcorn um, loudly. I wish they would make non-crunch popcorn when I'm in the movies. Um, and just sort of relaxing, just hand after hand after hand after hand. And so I was in this place of like adventure and excitement and fear and, and all this. And now I'm realizing that, no, oh, actually, you're like in the safest place ever. Okay? And there's really nothing to be afraid of at all. Right? And I think our, our sense of fear gets a little twisted sometimes. We fear so many things. We fear so many things that aren't worthy of our fear. And it shapes the way that we move through this world. And, and it shapes the way we live. And, and, and I love the antidote that God is, is giving us in these texts. It's so beautiful. One of my, I have two favorite movies. One of them is uh, 12 O'Clock High, which is 1940s uh, war movie. And uh, it's about the... Um, the bombers who went into uh, to Europe flying from England before America was ever were American bombers who were going over, and they're sort of the, the beginning of, of, of the defense of England, and there's a few of them. It's kind of new technology what they're doing, and so they're flying these missions over and over um, the mainland, the continent uh, in Europe, and there's so few of them, they're getting shot down, and they're, they're, they're starting to sort of lose their morale, and they're struggling, and one of their leaders kind of falls because he's just been chewed up and spit out too many times, and a new general comes in to take over this group and to kind of put the steel back in their bones, and he uh, reads, he tells them this speech, he stands up on his first day, and he talks to them about how how hard it is. He says, I, can, I saw it in your faces last night, he says. I can see it now. You've been looking at a lot of air flying time lately, and you think you ought to have a rest. In short, you're sorry for yourselves, he says. And then he goes on, he says, we're in a war, a shooting war. We've got to fight, and some of us have got to die. I'm not trying to tell you not to be afraid. Fear is normal. And I love this line, but stop worrying about it and about yourselves. Stop making plans. Forget about going home. Consider yourselves already dead. Once you accept that idea, it won't be so tough. Sounds a lot like Jesus, actually, and what he calls us to as Christians. Death to self, is, it's not really just a nice idea that we sort of sprinkle on top of our Christianity. It's essential to what it means to be a Christian. Death to self motivates and energizes how we move forward in the world, and it's absolutely critical. And I'm not there personally, and if you've been around me at all, you'd know that, 
Uh, I'm not there personally, but I, I don't know if, if that happens to you. I catch glimpses once in a while of the freedom and the joy that it would be to have completely died to self and to be living for God fearlessly and to be living for others and to not be worrying about the future. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, look, that's the life I have for you. And it's essential, it's core to what it means to be a Christian. And no, we're not going to achieve it perfectly in this life, but we can move towards it. And I'm guessing that most of us have a lot to grow in in this area of death to self. And, and by the way, that, that Air Force, you know, as they, as they took in the words of their commander and they began to fly missions that mentality changed the way that they operated. And it became incredibly successful. And, and a large part of why Nazism was stopped was because of those bombers who were able to take out so many of the factories and things. But they had to die to self in order to be able to do it. And part of following Jesus is dying to self. And how do you do that, you ask? Well, Jesus tells us in these texts, he says in verse 18, number one, this is what we should be focusing on. This is how we get there to the words of death to self. Verse 18 says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Not a hair of your head will perish. So I'm looking forward actually to the end times because the hair on my head will stop perishing. That's what it says right there. I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror and I say, Lord, you said not a a hair on your head will perish. When will you make good on your promise? But what is hair? Hair is the part of your body that you can most lose without noticing. I mean, I, you know, again, I wake up and I go, where did they all go? I didn't feel them losing, being lost, right? Because it has no feeling. Your hair has no feeling. Um, it just sort of, it, it, it can be cut and it doesn't hurt. Um, it's, the, it's the least important part of you, right, in many respects. And, and even that least important part of you will not be Lost because God has it in his hands. That's the confidence that we're to have as we consider dying to self. Not a hair on your head will perish. And then the next verse, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now that's a verse to focus on. So many voices of fear in our lives, and and these voices are associated with things that are important, uh, and that's why they have the potential to instill fear in us. Things like our relationships. What happens if something goes wrong with this relationship? If there's a fracture in there, it it produces fear in us. What happens if... um, uh, you know, our, our bodies break down and, and, and we can't function in the way that we would want to or, or we're not able to do a particular thing. We, we have anxiety and fear potentially around that. And, and what happens if our job, you know, that's a big part of our lives, our work situation um, doesn't, doesn't go perfectly uh, and, and, and so we have fear. What's going to happen to me? And there's a lot of politics I know in, in a lot of your workplaces and you, it's, it's painful to navigate those politics and it's a struggle and it's, it's, it's really difficult and so you have a lot of fear around that and anxiety around that. And, and some of us struggle with money and, and what's the future going to hold and I haven't saved enough or, or this crisis happened to me and I lost all of my, 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 my few money I was going to use in the future and, and you have these, these potential for anxiety around that or, or perhaps your family and the struggles that you're facing is, you know, your kids are not uh, turning out the way that you thought that they would or you're struggling with, 
with uh, different parts of that, and you're, you're, you're hurting, and you're broken, and you're, you have fear. Uh, the systems of this world, I find this as people get older, they tend to struggle, I think, more and more. There's a temptation to struggle more and more, to be more connected to the systems of this world, the government, and, and so there's fears associated with that. Where, where's our world going? Um, it's not like it used to be, and so we, we find that those are anxiety-producing, and and some of us actually do think about the afterlife, what, what's going to happen in, in this life afterwards. Uh, and, 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 and we actually worry about that. And the answer to all those is not a head on your hair will perish. A hair on your head will perish, actually, is how it's supposed to be. Not a hair on your head will perish. That's what Jesus says. And so those voices of fear are to be counteracted with the voice of Jesus. Okay? You hear the voice of fear and anxiety, and you counteract it with the voice of Jesus. And so you memorize that verse, and you stick it in your back pocket, and you repeat it to yourself, and you repeat it to that voice that you hear. And verse 19 is is part of that. Verse 19, by your endurance, you, you will gain your lives. Some criticize Christians for thinking too much about heaven, I disagree with that criticism. I I think we should be thinking about heaven as much as we possibly can. We should also be grounded in the world and thinking about life and how we live today. But you can't think about heaven too much, I don't think. See, if if you remove heaven from the equation, then what is Christianity? It's to help us just to live this life a little better. And in America, what that ends up leaving us with is Christianity that becomes a comfort enhancement product oftentimes. But that's not what it was intended for. It was intended to make us bold in this fallen, broken world, to take risks and to be on the adventure that we're called to be on, that we're made to be on, the adventure of life where the stakes are high, to make us bold so that we can live that adventure because we know that we have the security of the one who's watching the very hairs on our head. All right, don't be afraid. And then the last one was to bear witness. Verse 13 says, this will be your opportunity. This crisis will be your opportunity to bear witness. The crisis is the opportunity. You notice that in life? So often God's answers come enshrouded in crisis. You've been praying for something to be fixed, to be changed, to be transformed, and you've been waiting and then it seems like it's getting, it's getting worse. And you go, Lord, what are you doing? Well, actually, God is in the process of shaking it up to make it better. But sometimes it has to go through crisis first. And how can I say that? Because when this world is made better, it's going to go through crisis first. God's redemption of this world goes first through crisis and the shaking up and the upheaval and all the things that we talked about, the earthquakes and the clashes and the wars and the famines and the plagues, all of that is part of the process of getting to redemption and the renewal of all things. And so often we experience little versions of that in our lives when things are broken. We go through the crisis and then on the other side, God does His work or through it, God does His work. And so what a wonderful response for us to learn. Not to say in the midst of crisis, oh my goodness, I'm freaking out, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, but simply this little prayer, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? Not in an accusatory tone, I don't mean it that way, 
but in a simple, inquisitive tone. God, what are you doing? What are you shaking up? What are you renewing? What are you transforming in my relationship with people? Because right now it's rocky. Or what are you transforming in my life? Because right now I I can't see where we're headed. uh, And I don't know what the answer is. But what are you doing? I think that one of the, as Christians, one of the signs that we're moving towards maturity is that we become more and more um, naturally responding to the crises of life with that simple question, God, what are you doing? There's a kind of, a, underneath it, there's a kind of a trust that the Lord is over it. There's a sense that, you know, this is hard, but we're going to get through it. That God's in control, that yes, the promises that he will not let the hairs on my head perish ring true, and I believe them and I'm going to lean into them, and I'm going to try and cooperate with God in the midst of this. This is where we're headed as we follow Jesus. And we want to lean into Him in the midst of crisis and let Him settle things. And and it says in this, that in the midst of living that way, we bear witness to God. In the midst of living that way and, and, and speaking of it, we bear witness to God. So he says, settle in your minds to rely on the Holy Spirit. I think oftentimes we feel like we can't speak until we know exactly what we're going to say. And Jesus is saying, you need to shift your confidence away from your own knowledge of what you're going to say to your trust in the Holy Spirit to provide what you need in the moment when you need it. Shifting your confidence from yourself to the Holy Spirit. That's what we need to be doing. Now, there are contours to the way we speak. And we can learn and we grow in those. And they shape the way that we we find ourselves in these interactions with people where we're bearing witness to the confidence we ought to have in Christ. We're bearing witness to it. And we have concepts in our minds. Um, I, I was trained as a classical musician in my undergrad. And I love classical music. But lately, I have been learning more about jazz and listening to a lot more jazz. And what I love about jazz is that there are certain sort of paradigms and concepts that everybody embraces together, but within that, there's tremendous freedom to move about and to make music. And I think that's a little bit of what Jesus is talking about here. We, 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 we absorb Christ. We absorb the contours and the guidelines and who he is. And then in the moment, we let it rip. And we trust the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us in that moment. So we've been talking about as a community some of the contours of how you bear witness. We've been talking about prayer. We'll put those up there again, prayer. Uh, Before you're going to bear witness, the, the process starts with prayer. It starts in relationship with others by asking them about their lives. You look for opportunities to bless people when you get to know them, when you're around the water cooler, wherever it is. Somebody shares with you, you've been asking questions about their life and understanding what's going on, and then you have a chance to to, to then move into their life and to bless them, to bear witness in that way, to share what God has done in your life, and then lastly, to to tell them the gospel itself. And it's kind of a jazz orientation. You've got these contours, but the, the content of it is open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's what you need to lean into and lay, lean on is God's work of the Spirit in the moment 
to share with you how to move through those. And this is the key piece that I want to make sure we think about. So often we're in process with people, we're getting to know them, and we're, we're asking questions, we want to bless them, and then some crisis happens in the relationship, and you think, oh my goodness, we were making such good progress, and now it's all ruined. But you know what? It's the very crisis that is the movement of God, creating a new opportunity and a new window for you to operate in this person's life. So the crisis doesn't mean it's over. A lot of times it means that this relationship's going to the next level. Okay? That's the beautiful thing. The redemption comes through the crisis. In fact, the crisis is a key part of it. That's the story of the world. And so it's often the small story in our lives as well. So the world needs, Jesus is saying, the world needs people who are clearly directed. They're not wandering astray. People are clearly focused on Jesus Christ and and able to, to hold on, even in the midst of all hell breaking loose. And the world needs people who are fearless, not because they're superhuman, but because of the promises of God in their lives. And the world needs people who are willing to bear witness courageously, not because they have confidence in their own ability, but because of the Holy Spirit alive in them. The world desperately needs those kind of people, and that's us, that's you and me, to be countersigns pointing to the God of the universe in the midst of a broken and fallen world. And that's what we've been called to be. And, and, and I would have to say, it's how we're meant to be. Why do we sit in movie theaters and get excited about movies like The Hobbit, where it's just like crisis and chaos and mayhem, one after the other, and they just barely get out? Why are we drawn to these stories? Because on some profound level, we were meant to live that kind of adventure. And we need to stop using our Christianity to enhance our comfort in this world. And we need to allow the boldness that our faith brings to send us on the path of adventure where we take risks fearlessly, trusting in God, relying on the Holy Spirit, focused on Christ. That's what the world needs, is a people like that. And somewhere deep inside of all of us, there is is a person wanting to jump on that adventure with God. And to see it lived out in miraculous ways. So that that when you go to The Hobbit, you say, yeah, that was boring compared to my life. Right? I'm living that out on a daily basis as I step out in faith with the Lord. And He guides me and He leads me. God, would you do something spectacular in our midst to make us like Jesus? We're reminded this morning that of all the adventures that have ever been lived, the one that Christ lived was the greatest. And He was the one who exhibited death to self more than anybody else going to that cross. What an adventure of a life that Jesus lived in this world. And then the resurrection that followed. All the exciting adventure stories are just subsets of that one magnificent story that Jesus Christ lived in this world. And we want to be like Him. We want to be like you, God. And so help us, help us to lean into you. Lord, help us not to be led astray. Help us to find strength against the temptation to fear in you. And help us, Lord, to bear witness courageously, to jump on this adventure of bearing witness 
to the God who made us and redeemed us. We pray this in your matchless name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This table is a celebration of all that we've talked about.